You are listening to the Grace Church of Mountain podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Paul, for reading our text. I wonder today if you have ever been desperate for change. Have you ever been desperate for change? Have you ever laid awake at night dreaming of what the world should be like? of what your life should be like. Sometimes maybe you're like this, you look around at the world around us and you see all the things that are wrong with the world. Even in this past week, kids being killed at school, politicians, world leaders who are so disappointing and you look around and think the world is just not the way it ought to be. Or maybe you look at your own life and you wish it was all different. You look back maybe at how you grew up, the home you grew up in, and the things you experienced, and you think, and you dream of what would it have been like if things were different? What if my family was whole? What if we had had money? What if these things hadn't happened? Or maybe now you look at your life and you feel a little stuck in a job that I never wanted, living in a place I never intended to live in a situation I never would have chosen for myself. I wish I could change this sickness, bring back this loved one, end this pain, fix this, change that. And if you've ever felt, or if you are feeling even today, this, this feeling, this kind of desperate desire for change, for things to be different, then you're ready to read our text today. And understand our text, because the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, this story is really a story of hope, and a story of of hope for people who are desperate for change. So here's our outline for today as we think about this text. The the outline's in your bulletin, if you want to pull that page out, if you have it, and want to follow along or take notes, also up here on the screen are three points for today. First, we'll talk about the world that Jesus was living in, the Jerusalem that he walked into, and how people were desperate for change at that time. And second, we'll talk about the entry itself, the royal entry. Why and how does Jesus enter Jerusalem like this? And then third, we'll talk about what this says about our hope, that Jesus is our hope, and we have hope in him. So first, desperate for change. And in order to understand what's taking place here with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we have to go back into the world of Jesus at that time. This entrance into Jerusalem, it happened 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't know how long you've been alive, but at least from my perspective, 2,000 years is a long time. Okay, this was a long time ago, and not only a long time ago, but these events happen on the other side of the world from us in a very different place in Jerusalem in a very different culture among the Jewish people. So there's a lot of differences between our world today and their world back then. But the one key thing we need to understand about the world at their time for understanding what happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem is we need to understand that the Jewish people of that time were desperate for change. They were suffering enormous hardship. They felt all the way deep into their bones that the world was not the way it was supposed to be. They were a conquered people. 
At this time in history, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. They did not choose to have Rome as their empire. It was forced upon them. They were conquered. Rome is a massive, powerful empire. They control all the wealth. They have all the power. The Jewish people, they're just a little group of people at that time, a small little kingdom, a nation that's conquered. They're, they're barely a blip on the map, hardly even afterthought for the emperor of Rome. Rome makes all the rules. Whatever Rome wants, Rome gets. They take whatever they want in taxes, and it's a lot. They decide who the rulers will be local rulers over the Jewish people. They don't care about the Jewish people. They're not humane. The Jewish people are just there to be used, to help make Rome richer and more powerful. It's what we would call oppression, what we might call abuse. And these Jewish people had been suffering like this for a very long time. At this point in history, they had been suffering for about 500 years like this. They were first conquered 500 years before Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Now, 2,000 years is a long time. 500 years is also a long time. If we think from today's terms, what was happening 500 years ago? It wasn't much more than 500 years ago that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Like the Americas from the Western Europeans, the Americas were just being discovered by them. 500 years ago? How old is our nation, the United States of America? 250 years or something old, give or take? Twice as long as the United States has been a country. The Jewish people have been suffering. They were conquered first by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians. Their cities were destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. Thousands, tens of thousands of Jews killed in war and in battle trying to defend their homeland. Then many more tortured and executed afterward. Tens of thousands taken into slavery. They are a conquered people. They've been ruled over by foreign empires for 500 years. These empires collecting taxes from them, but also trying to force them into their ways, trying to change their religion, trying to change their culture, change their customs, oppressing, abusing. And any, for 500 years now, any Jewish person who stepped out, who pushed back, who spoke out against this, could expect to be arrested, to be tortured, to be publicly executed as a demonstration that you don't fight back for 500 years. And as a result, most Jews in Jesus' day lived in what we would call poverty. They barely scraped by. Just enough food to get by one day to the next, often hungry, underfed. And they dreamed of change. They remembered the promises that God had made to them in Scripture. They look back into the Old Testament, their scriptures at that time, and they remember God promised to our forefather Abraham this great promise that we would be a great nation, that God would use us, and through us he would bless all the nations. That promise is out there for us. They remember God's promise to King David. 
that God would build up the Israelite kingdom and put a Jewish king on the throne to rule forever. Where's the king? They're wondering. They remember God's promises through the prophets. If you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, where God at different times and different ways promising to defeat all their enemies, to bring peace into the land, no more wars, no more suffering, where all the nations and kingdoms would come to Jerusalem to worship God, not to oppress the people. And so they have these promises from God that paint a picture of the world the way it ought to be, with peace, prosperity, abundance, joy, freedom. Then they have their reality, the way the world actually is for them. Suffering, oppression, poverty, violence, pain. And so every night for 500 years, these people have been going to bed dreaming of change. They're desperate for it. And it's into this world of desperation that Jesus comes along now and makes his royal entry. So with thoughts of desperation of change in our minds, now we're ready to read and to try to make sense of what happens in our text. So now we come to our second point, the royal entry. Matthew chapter 21. Here's what we find. Jesus, he's traveling with his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover feast. This is when Jews from far and wide, wherever you lived, far out, away from Jerusalem, this would be the time to travel into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So the paths, the roads leading into Jerusalem, they're all full of Jewish people traveling into Jerusalem for the feast. And so Jesus and his disciples are traveling with the crowds. And Jesus, of course, knows he's coming to Jerusalem not just for the Passover feast, but he's also coming ultimately to die and to be raised from the dead. But verse 1 of our text, Matthew 21, says, As Jesus and the disciples get close to Jerusalem, Jesus sends two disciples into the village in front of them with very specific instructions. So says, go in, you're going to find a donkey tied up there, and with it a colt, a baby donkey with that donkey. Untie them, Jesus says, and bring them to me. Now this is basically stealing. Just go take the donkey, Jesus says. And he tells his disciples, if anyone says something to you, hey, those aren't your donkeys, are they? You're going to answer that person, Jesus says, by saying, the Lord needs them. And he'll give them back when he's finished. Now, this, this attitude that Jesus has, what he's demonstrating here and how he takes the donkey it's indicating that Jesus here, he is in a royal frame of mind. In other words, he's acting here like he is a king in his kingdom. You know, if you live in a kingdom where there's a king, and the king comes up to you and says, hey, I need your horse. You don't say, no, it's my horse. You say to the king, yes, Lord, and you give him the horse. Because in a kingdom with a king, everything in the kingdom, at the end of the day, everything exists for the king, in service to the king. And so Jesus says, that donkey is mine, essentially, in my kingdom. I'm acting like a king. Go get the donkey. Bring it to me. The Lord needs it. But why a donkey? Of all the animals, a king 
could demand for coming into Jerusalem. We know from history that as these travelers were coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast like this, that anybody who was a somebody coming into Jerusalem would stage an entrance. If, if you were a ruler or a wealthy person and you're traveling to Jerusalem and you're about to come into the city, you don't want to walk into town like all the other commoners, all the little people. You don't want to just be another of the riffraff coming into town. You're going to stage an entrance to show how important you are. The more magnificent the entrance, the better. The more people you can get to come out of the city to welcome you and escort you in, the more important you are as a person. And so people would stage these entrances. Jesus here, he's staging his entrance. But he picks a donkey to ride on. Not exactly impressive. Not a demonstration of wealth. Nobody who's powerful gets on a donkey and rides into war on a donkey. You know, nobody who's rich is riding a donkey. How about a chariot? Maybe a golden chariot with impressive horses. That would be cooler. Why a donkey? Well, Matthew says here, as he's writing this story for us, he explains it. He says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from the prophet Zechariah. This is verse 5 of our text. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, one of those prophets in the Old Testament that Ron's been talking about in Sunday school. Here's what Zechariah 9.9 says that Matthew quotes. Say to the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Zion is the people of Jerusalem, the residents of the city in Jerusalem. Say to these people, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now Zechariah, who writes these words, the prophet, he lived about 500 years before the royal entry here. Again, how long have the people of Israel been suffering, desperate for change? About 500 years. Zechariah lived in the days when the people of Israel were first conquered and fell into captivity. And Zechariah, the prophet, he described how the people of Israel, how God would one day rescue the people of Israel and bring change to them and fix the world. And Zechariah said, here's how you'll know the time for change has come. It's when God sends his king to you. This king, Zechariah, goes on to say in chapter 9, he's going to bring salvation to you. He's going to turn the world around and fix everything. He'll get rid of all the oppression and suffering, Zechariah says. He'll bring in peace. Zechariah even says, in that day, God's people, they will thrive. They will sparkle in Jerusalem like jewels in a crown. Isn't that our dream to sparkle? Don't you want to sparkle? They're going to sparkle like jewels in a crown. The world will be so glorious, Zechariah says. So here's the sign. Here's how you know the time has come. He says, your king will come to you. And how will he come to you? Riding on a donkey, in humility. There'll be so much peace that this king will bring that you don't even need a war horse or a chariot. A donkey is sufficient. Now, Zechariah said this 500 years earlier. Now here's Jesus, time to come into the city, time for my entrance. And how does Jesus decide to enter 
Jerusalem. Go get a donkey for me, he says. And with it, the colt, the baby donkey, just like Zechariah described. And so as Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem like this, word begins to spread and the people come out to meet Jesus and their excitement is stirred. Maybe this is the king that God promised. Remember, the desperate for change. Watching, waiting, when will God fulfill his promises? And here comes somebody riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Could this be the king? And they get excited. And in their excitement, they cut branches from trees and begin laying them on the road. Our king needs to come not walking on dirt. Give him a proper path to walk on. Get rid of the dust. They take off their cloaks and they lay their cloaks on the road for Jesus and the donkey to come across. They're celebrating, but there's also reverence and and even signs of allegiance here. It's rolling out the red carpet for Jesus, but also the cloak for many of these people in poverty. This is one of, or maybe the most valuable thing they own. And they're taking it off and putting it on the ground for the donkey to walk on. It's a sign of surrender. That all I have belongs to God's king who is coming. And they're shouting. In verse 9, they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna was a, a shout of praise at that time. Like we might say, hurrah, hurrah. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Praise to the God who saves. Praise God, praise God. They call Jesus the son of David. Here's a descendant of King David. He is a rightful heir to the throne of David. They quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a psalm that celebrates how God's king reigns over the earth and the people of Israel. This time, the Jewish people, they had taken this phrase from Psalm 118, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and they used that to describe the king who would come the Messiah they were looking forward to. And now they use that phrase for Jesus. He's the one coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he. Everything they are doing, everything they are saying, all of it exalts Jesus as the king. This is the moment. The promised king has come to fulfill God's promises, to fix the world, to bring the change we've been waiting for. So word spreads quickly throughout Jerusalem. The whole city is stirred up. In verse 10, they're all asking, who is this guy who comes into Jerusalem like he's our awaited king? And the answer in verse 11, well, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's Jesus. You know, that guy from Nazareth. He's the one entering as the king. Now that's the end of our text for today. That's the royal entry or the triumphal entry sometimes it's called. We celebrate it on Palm Sunday when the people put those palm branches on the road. And if if the story stopped right here, if this was the end of the story of Jesus, we would ask the question at this point, well, what happens then? Is Jesus going to live up to all the hype and expectation? 
Will he bring about all the changes God has promised? Will he fix everything? Or will he just be another disappointment? This isn't the first time in 500 years that the people got excited. Their hopes got stirred up, that they thought the king had come. There had been other people who had come through the years who seemed like maybe they were the promised king and people got excited about him, but always ended in disappointment. The king always fell short. And the sufferings came back. And the people were stuck in their situation. Is Jesus going to live up to the hype? Or will he disappoint? And this takes us to our third and final point, that Jesus is our hope. Now here's the spoiler alert, okay? Jesus does not disappoint. But Jesus is full of surprises. And he doesn't bring change in quite the way the people expected. And what Jesus actually does is he far exceeds the expectations. He accomplishes a salvation far greater than people ever could have imagined. So what does Jesus do now that he has come as the king? Well, we're in Matthew chapter 21. If you take the time over this week, and it'd be a good thing to do, if you take the time over this week to read the next several chapters of what happens when Jesus is in Jerusalem, you can read chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, all of it describing what happened in the next few days in Jerusalem. And what you'll find is that Jesus next, after he's in Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and he stirs up things in the temple, drives people out of the temple, tries to restore worship in the temple. It's kind of a powerful thing to do, a power move from Jesus, judgment here, the kind of thing that a new king potentially would do, restoring worship. But other than that event, from there, everything Jesus does is pretty unimpressive, quite frankly. He starts teaching and running his mouth and talking about things. He confronts the religious leaders and calls them out for going astray. He talks about doing things in the future when he'll come back and there'll be glory and all these things. But if you're the people in the crowd... If you're the people who got excited about Jesus and laid down your cloaks for him, Jesus is pretty disappointing. We're being crushed by the Roman Empire. There are Roman soldiers all around us abusing us. I'm poor and hungry right now. I've got real problems today here. And Jesus is busy arguing with the Jewish leaders cleansing the temple, talking and teaching. That's what he's worried about. And in chapter 22, Jesus even tells the people to keep on paying their taxes to Caesar. Give the Roman emperor what he is due. Oh, and by the way, your enemies, Jesus says, love them. Love your enemies. I mean, come on, Jesus. You're supposed to be the king changing the world, bringing peace, reigning and ruling, making everything right. And this is what you're talking about? 
And so it's no wonder that by the end of the week, just a few days later, when Jesus has been arrested, he's put on trial, and what are the crowds shouting? Let him be crucified. He's a fake. He's not the king. Okay, he rode in on a donkey, but anybody can stage an entrance like that. Might as well put him to death. He's just another disappointment. So Jesus is killed on the cross. He's buried in a tomb. Looks like another failure. Back to our sufferings. Back to our hardship. But then, spoiler alert here, what happens three days later? I know it's not Easter yet. We're not supposed to talk about this until next week. But what happens three days after Jesus is put in the tomb? He's raised from the dead. What? Like, what in the world just happened? Game changer here. And then the pieces start coming together for his disciples and for others. That, wait, Jesus really is a king. But this is, there's something different. This is a different kind of king, a far greater king than we ever could have imagined. Then they start to realize he did come to bring change, but he came to bring a far better change than anybody ever dreamed of. He didn't come to just do something small like defeat Rome or just fix some problems in my life. He came to defeat the ultimate enemy of all humanity, the enemy of sin and death. And everything in the world that is broken and wrong, everything in my life that is wrong in my life, the pain, the hardship, the sorrow, all of it is ultimately the consequence of sin. And all of it is ultimately part of the process of death, the consequence of sin, that the world is under a curse of death, the world is falling apart, everything is decaying and being destroyed. Sin and death, that's the core problem. That's the disease. Everything else is a symptom. Sin and death, that's the cause of all suffering and pain. That's why there are empires that conquer and rule over one another. That's why people oppress others and are oppressed by others, abuse and are abused, hurt and are hurt. It's why loved ones die. It's why we have grief and sorrow. All of it goes back to the problem of sin and death. If Jesus had come into Jerusalem as a warrior, riding in a chariot, rallying an army, overthrowing the Roman Empire. Oh, it would have been a great victory for sure. But it would have only been a temporary fix. So long as sin and death are still around and in charge, people would eventually go to their old ways. Peace would fade, suffering would come back. Eventually another kingdom would rise to power. There'd be war, there'd be conquering. Loved ones would still die. These things will always be true so long as there's sin and death in the world. But what did Jesus actually do as king? And what kind of change did he actually bring? He rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, ready to make war and to take down sin and death itself. He rides 
a donkey forward into Jerusalem, and that donkey indicates how he would wage his war. He comes in a humble way, in humility, because how will he defeat sin? By dying on a cross. How will he defeat death? By being raised from the dead in victory over death. And so it's in the cross and the resurrection, his humble work, that Jesus defeats sin and death. He strips them of their power. And this is the good news for us. This is what brings us hope. Hope for change. When we're desperate for change, here's where change is found. It's found in Jesus, in what Jesus has accomplished. And like the people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the kind of hope that Jesus brings, the kind of change he brings, may not be exactly the kind of change that we want. He may or may not change my world right here, right now, in the way I want him to change my world right here, right now. But the change he does bring to us, the hope he does bring is far better than whatever change it is that I've been dreaming of. When we turn to Jesus in faith, when we repent of our sins and give our lives to him as our king, then Jesus goes to work in us and in our lives. And what does he do for us? Oh, such great things. Can we even imagine? He forgives our sins once and for all. He washes us clean and restores us before God. He gives us new life in our hearts and makes us new people. He welcomes us into his family, adopts us into his family, and we become sons and daughters of God. He gives us the hope of resurrection, that even death itself cannot defeat us because Jesus has defeated death. And just like Jesus was raised from their grave, he'll raise us from the grave to live with him for all eternity. And this changes everything for us. Changes us from the inside out, fills us up with hope. At the same time in his wisdom, he may leave us in our circumstances, at least for the time being. He may or may not change those things in our world that make life so hard for us. He may or may not take away the pain and the hardship, the sorrow, right here and right now. But we have this great hope. This hope that he is doing something so much better, so much bigger than that. That he's at work in our hearts and in our lives. And there's the hope that we're promised in scripture that a day is coming when Jesus will return. And when Jesus comes back the second time, He's not going to come riding on a donkey with humility. In the future day, Jesus will come. The book of Revelation says he'll come on a horse, a war horse, ready to fix the world once and for all. This is the day when he will judge all sin. He will strike down all the oppression and suffering and pain and hardship. This is the day when he'll get rid of death once and for all. He'll raise us from the dead to be with him. There will be no more sin, no more death, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain. And if we know Jesus, then this is the promised day we hold on to in our hope. That the Jesus who came into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, 
to die for us, to defeat sin, to defeat death, this same Jesus will come again to take us home to live with him for all eternity. And in the meantime, he's at work right here in our lives, in our hearts, renewing us, changing us, filling us up with hope. So if today you're desperate for change, you wish life could be different, here's the best news of all. And it's Jesus. Look to Jesus and see that your king has come, humble and riding on a donkey. And he has brought a salvation for you far greater than you ever dreamed of. A salvation from sin and death. A salvation of hope for you. And he will come again to fix the world once and for all. So turn to Jesus and put your faith in him and receive his hope. And for us who know Jesus, as we reflect on Jesus coming into Jerusalem like this, may this be a reminder to us of all the good things we have received in Jesus. So no matter what we are experiencing right now in the world, we can give thanks to him and celebrate the victory that he's accomplished by his death and resurrection, a victory over sin and death itself. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.